Ahoy Mets fans! Welcome to episode 298 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore. Thank you for joining us tonight on our final episode of the regular season. In a little bit, we have Allison talking about the nemometer and the degrometer, although she will not be covering DeGrom's last start that is saved for next week. And we're going to have Steve Saipa doing his regular update on the minor league system, uh, which is which has been super fun this year. I, I know uh, we have it every week, but I haven't really talked about it. I love what Steve does for the show, and I'm super happy that he's a part of our show. And I think that if you listen to this podcast, it's a great way to get a glimpse into the minor league world if you're not somebody who necessarily can follow it as closely. Like, for me personally, I don't really have a scout's eye at all. I couldn't do half of what Steve does from a an analysis standpoint just by you know the eye test so hearing someone like steve talk about it is is amazing and i'm really glad we have that on our show and so steve will be up in a little while but first chris mcshane and i are back together for the second time in a while but it, it feels like chris and i were doing this for you know years without a break and now we've been doing some other stuff and so it's kind of weird but it's great to get chris back and we're going to talk about the end of the season and david right there on saturday and a few more things so uh check it out well, Chris, we are recording as the Mets are playing their final game of the year against the uh, Atlanta Braves. They are currently up 4-1. to one. Jason Vargas had an excellent start tonight, believe it or not. Went seven innings, <laughs> struck out six, didn't walk anybody. You know, I believe three hits. Uh, you know, Mets are, I said, they're, they're up 4-1 to one now. The bullpen coughed up one run. But overall, the Mets have been playing better over the last three or four weeks than they have been at any point since, I guess we'll call it April. So, what are you seeing from the Mets in late August and September, and does this give you any confidence for 2019? Well, it, it, it's sort of the foundation of it. You know, you have four young hitters who are all playing either pretty well or really well. And that, to me, is really the biggest takeaway. I mean, it's a combination of the fact that the you know the starting pitching, even bad Noah Syndergaard, hasn't been bad by like normal standards. <laughs> you know, he's been he's been fine this year. It's just when you have Jacob Degrom putting up one of the best seasons in franchise and baseball history, really. Um, you know, when you have that. And Zach Wheeler having such a strong second half, you know, Syndergaard looks sort of pedestrian in comparison, but he's still been good. So uh, those three and then the four hitters, uh, McNeil in particular, just because it's, you know, he, he's kind of the shiny new toy. Um, Conforto getting back to what we all know he's capable of. And, you know, we, we talked about it over the course of the, the winter, the spring, and early this season, Conforto getting back to form wasn't something that we were certain was going to happen just because of the way he got injured, right, right. you know? Um, so those two, uh, obviously Brendan Nimmo has remained really good. You know, his, his stat line is going to look nice at the end of the season no matter what. And then Rosario, it's there's still a little more that needs to happen, but... You know he's he's starting. He's, he's been a he's much starting to look like a more well-rounded player. Right. Yeah, he's been doing better at the plate, and I think it seems to have made him more comfortable in the field. You know, 
I'm not ready to say like he's going to make the all-star team next year, but you know, this is good signs from a guy who we know has talent and a, a prospect pedigree, so to speak. Yeah. So, and, and tonight the Mets put those four hitters in the first four slots in the lineup, which is essentially what they should have been doing since, I don't know, July, but better late than never at least they've been playing them regularly um you know these last few games get them as many reps as you can and uh you know i have to think the mets front office listens to the podcast i have to think that uh in part because oh yeah hasn't been playing very much (laughs) um which is you know obviously a podcast favorite topic and also dom smith's been getting a little bit more of a look in the field and I am still not sold on Dom Smith, but the last few weeks of Dom Smith have been a big improvement. Yeah, so that was something that, you know, as as we're coming into recording tonight, I I was just looking a little bit, you know, we're we're not quite at the end of the season, but we're getting to that point where we're reflecting on the season that was. And I was just looking at the second half splits. And with Smith, it's not – a lot of plate appearances because they haven't played him that much, but I didn't really realize that, you know, in that time he's hit really well. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if I buy it, but it's, I don't, I'd rather see that than not. Right. <laughs> well, it's hard because when he first was brought back up, he made a couple of those terrible plays. Remember? Yeah. Oh, excuse me. He cost the team the game because of a, a dropped ball in the outfield, or, or because he collided with someone in the outfield. You know, he just had some really terrible plays in the field that just made you so upset that he was out there playing in left field. That I think, even when it did anything good for the next week or two after that, at least my attitude was like, "Well, he still shouldn't be. He, he still shouldn't be playing in the outfield. He still shouldn't be doing X, Y, and Z." And so, right, it took a while to sort of let that slide away and to sort of take him a bit of face value and, and, and see what was happening with him, you know, legitimately. And look, I still don't think he's the first baseman of the future, but if he's a useful player, I'm happy to have him on the roster at least temporarily. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I'd rather have him, uh, you know, show signs of this and at least go into 2019 feeling like he could be useful in some capacity uh, you know, the benefits of the Mets. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, we touched on it uh, briefly a second ago about Zach Wheeler's strong second half. Uh, Wheeler was shut down, I guess, about 10 days ago now. Uh, you know, just he had been uh, – there were a couple of games. What was the one game? Didn't he have a – did he have a shutout going into the eight, in, after the eighth inning? Or just a complete game, and he basically said, like, I'm gassed, pull me out of the game, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was eight innings, 80-something pitches, yeah. shutout. And, uh, you know, so he's just been getting exhausted, and he hasn't pitched this much in quite some time. And so the Mets shut him down just, you know, partially for health reasons, partially just for exhaustion. But Wheeler's second half, I mean, it's impressive no matter how you look at it. But when you remember that he started the year in AAA, and when you remember that yeah. – you know, he really hasn't been a stable part of this rotation in years now. I think his name has to be in consideration for comeback player of the year. Don't you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and this is a guy who, uh, you know, he missed two full seasons. He came back last year and he just didn't pitch all that much. Um, 
and he wasn't good either. So, and 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 his season ended early uh, because of concerns about it, his health. So, you know, you add all that up, and this is a guy who came back and was one of the best pitchers in baseball, really, for this uh, what three four months. Um, you know, the fact that he started where he did and wound up with a 3.31 ERA at the end of the season, that's uh, that's pretty impressive. And it's his best single season mark now. Um, you know, it, it's sort of like a scattered sampling of, of when those innings and uh, games were pitched. But, you know, this was just shy of being a career high in innings. It's his best career mark in, uh, in ERA. His walk rate was better than ever. His home run rate matched, uh, you know, his his best previous mark in a single season. So you just look at all this stuff and, and you look at the way he was throwing, um, you know, increased velocity, the the split change or splitter, whatever you want to call it, and, and kind of ditching the traditional change up. Um, you know, he, he wasn't a strikeout machine. You know, you see some starting pitchers who will strike out 10 or more batters per nine innings. Some of them are have been on the Mets <laughs> uh, either this year or recently. But, man, like you, you put all that together and it, it was disappointing to hear they were shutting him down only because I just wanted to see right. more. Like, I logically, I totally get it. Um, you, you can go into next year saying, hey, he can throw – you know, 200 innings or throw 200 innings. And if things really go well, be a guy who's there in the playoffs. Um, if he can establish that kind of durability, that will mean really good things for him as he works his way toward free agency. But man, like, yeah, you, you add all that up. A guy misses two full years, has a crappy year and then does this. Um, you know, I, I, Maybe I'm just ignoring players on other teams who have been in similar positions, but I think he's sort of a lock for that. I hope so, for his sake, you know. Uh, you know yeah. Wheeler was at, at at a time, you know, when when Wheeler was traded for three months of Carlos Beltran, he was considered one of the best prospects in baseball, and then almost instantly became a, a second thought for the Mets when Harvey debuted. And then Syndergaard and DeGrom, and he's been sort of left behind. And I'm not saying that because I feel sorry for him because, you know, he's a professional athlete making millions of dollars and is very, very good at what he does. I'm just saying that because he never – you always got the impression that he wasn't living up to his potential or to his hype. And so to see him able to do that is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, you know – just to do it at a time when things like I'm sure it kills him that he wasn't there for 2015 to be around as part of that right season. Um, but at a, at a time that the Mets and Mets fans need things to just look like, Hey, here's something that's, you know, maybe we can kind of latch onto for 2019. Um, you know, that that's big. And sort of getting back to the your first question, you know, all of this is good. It, it gives you something to say, okay, 
it's possible that they could be good. You know, <laughs> if Wheeler had another season where he threw a hundred innings and had mixed results and all that, and you know, even if Degrom and Syndergaard did exactly the same thing, but maybe McNeil or Conforto wasn't totally on fire to end the year, um, you take away a few of those pieces and you feel like, man, you know, this team doesn't like to spend money. Where are they going to get back to being good? Um, you know, the concern is still the same. All right, I, I'm I'm going to buy in to all of these guys. Um, you know, Degrom and Syndergaard were established, but Wheeler, and then the four hitters that we talked about. I'm still concerned about spending. I'm very concerned about the bullpen. You know, there no Met fan in their right mind is going to say, "Oh yeah, they're uh, they're great. They're going to be contending." Uh, immediately in 2019 but you know it, it's you can be more optimistic than you maybe would have expected yeah you know I, I i think it was last night on the broadcast keith had said that he uh he felt the mets have enough offense to compete next year and i was i i kind of you know uh cocked my head to the side and said really keith you know i don't I don't know if I see that, but but then he went on to kind of clarify that if everybody's healthy, and I guess he includes Cespedes in that, and I, I'm sure there's a way to squint your eyes and look at everybody being healthy and the team being set offensively. But I think more than that, I just get the feeling, you know, we talked a lot last offseason about how we, especially you, felt the Mets needed another um, another starting pitcher or two. And you know, yeah. I don't think that that need has gone away, but I think we now have a much better idea of what all the starting pitchers are capable of. And so if nothing else, I feel like the team now has a bit more of a, that's what I'm looking for. Like, I feel like now their needs for next year are more clearly laid out than they were at this time of last year. And so that makes me feel slightly optimistic as a Mets fan that, you know, hopefully a new GM will be coming in with a, with a fresh set of eyes and they can look at what is clearly a team in need of a bullpen makeover and, you know, hopefully a Manny Machado edition. And, uh, right. <laughs> I mean, Hey, I, I'm all for demanding it all off season because it should be the demand. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and you, you, you see, uh, you know, you'll you'll get fans. I think of any team. Uh, it, sometimes it feels like it's exclusive to us. We have our own special state of mind with the Mets, but but it's probably every team. You'll have fans rationalize like, "Oh, but where where would you play Manny Machado? I don't know on your team in the lineup every day. Like everybody else can move around. We can we can figure this one out. Um, you know, if that means." Machado's got to suck it up and make money playing third base or Frazier, you know, and that would result in Frazier not playing as much or, or trading, Frazier you know, or, you know, right. the However much Frazier's owed for next year. Right. So, you know, it, that would be a fantastic problem to have. Um, so yeah, if, if you're a Mets fan, you know, and, and uh, I think I had written something on the site, um, man, over a month ago now, but you know they they're talking as they're in their just miserable middle of the summer, 
they're talking about, oh, well, we think we can be good in 2019. And I, <laughs> I wrote a thing like, well, they need to sign Manny Machado if they're serious about this, you know. And people, it, I like, I get it. People will be like, well, that's not the reality. So, ha ha, yeah, sure, whatever. But like, no, that's what Mets fans should be demanding. It it would be perfect for what they need. You know, you you can rationalize not signing Harper better to me than yeah, Machado. The Mets already have nine outfielders or something crazy like that. You know, right? Um, like you, you you hope Cespedes will return to a productive form. But even if he doesn't, you know. They have Nimmo and Conforto, and Harper's not a center fielder either. And um, with the reality of the budget being limited somewhere, I can rationalize that and be a little more okay with it. But if they if they were willing to like go get Manny Machado, <laughs> man, I'll buy a ticket plan again. I'm you know that. I mean, look, if Machado plays third, I see no argument here for why you wouldn't want to go out and get Machado. And look, right. I love Ahmed Rosario. I think Ahmed Rosario has a bright future as a major leaguer. That said, if Manny Machado will only come here if he plays shortstop, hey, guess what? Manny Machado's my starting third shortstop next year, and we'll move Rosario yep. someplace else, or we'll figure you know we'll figure something out. That's okay. Right. You know. Yeah. I just. Uh, I I feel like I am totally fine with the traditional grumpy Mets fan. What I'm not fine with is the Mets fan that, when presented with optimistic ideas, refuses to even consider them. <laughs> yeah. We all know people like that. Yeah. And and we should be, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, participating in any boycotts or, you know, anything like that. But we should at least be willing to demand that they do something that's the best and not just, you know, half measures. Yeah. yeah it, it, it seems like with, you know, it, I would think that when bringing in a new GM, they would be, they're going to have to talk a talk during the interview process that we are willing to spend a bit this year. And I feel like maybe they will spend more this season than they will next season because they want first-year GM to be happy and do his job. If that's the case, this might be the Machado perfect storm. Right. Yeah, that, that, would, that would be ideal. Sign me up. <laughs> um, but we, we need to, to touch a little bit here on, on Jacob DeGrom's last start. And we're going to spend probably a full episode in the next month or so just talking about DeGrom's season, digging a little bit deeper, maybe having some guests on to talk about DeGrom stuff. But, you know, last night DeGrom pitched his final start of 2018. He went eight innings. He gave up two hits, struck out 10, walked none, and uh, notched his 1,000th career strikeout in the process. If there was any doubt that DeGrom was going to be the National League Cy Young Award winner, it seemed like last night giving him a winning record of 10 and 9 putting him in double digits and in and in a winning uh record seems like that probably silences most of the grumps who care about pitcher wins when it comes to uh the Cy Young stuff so at this point do you feel confident 
in DeGrom winning the uh, National League Cy Young Award? And if not, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, I do. Uh, you know, when uh, I, I know sometimes uh, beat writers might come off as being, um, you know, maybe a little bit uh, favorable to players they cover who are eligible, you know, who have the credentials for these kinds of awards. But, you know, when you sort of have a, a complete uh, consensus from New York baseball writers that somebody on the Mets is a lock to win an award, you know, I, I feel like it's a little bit different with the Yankees where they might be a little more prone to romanticize and, you know, just kind of buy into all of this success and blah, 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 you know, your standard Yankee fan thing. So even then I think they could, it would be, it would be something to say that they're all thinking it, but especially with a Met for them to all just be like, yeah, it's like, it's not even close. Um, did you see the, that? That says something did to you me. See the two things from the Braves that led me to believe that it's definitely happening. Uh, I saw things from the Braves. Well, Which ones one, were they? <laughs> that Degrom is hands down the Cy Young Award winner. And right, okay, yeah, I saw that. Jones is a guy who I feel like is actually way more fair than you can expect Chipper Jones to be when talking about other teams and things like that. But it right. still seems to me like when he comes down on the side of something, baseball writers listen because he's capital C Chipper, capital J Jones, you know? So there was that. Right. And then did you, did you see what, what Freddie Freeman did last night? Uh, that I don't know if I did now, say. I, I was, uh, I had my son's back to school nights. So I missed the first part of the game last night. But my father claimed that at one point, uh, Freddie Freeman walked over and shook DeGrom's hand in the middle of the game. Like, like ha. after a, uh, after at the, at the end of an inning, as one was walking off the field, he shook DeGrom's hand. And that's All right. a classy move well, yeah. from Freddie Freeman. And yeah. if, if a division rival opposing player is recognizing your pitching dominance, and I can't see how the uh, the baseball writers of America can't do that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I it's not even a it's just, it's not about the other guys at this point. It was just such a great season that you know, Aaron Nola and Max Scherzer would have been totally respectable uh, options for the award if DeGrom hadn't done this. Or if he had a garbage September. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, it, like, if those two guys were one and two in ERA and, you know, everything else with their seasons was pretty much just on par with what, they're, what they've done, then, sure, you know, it wouldn't be – I'm, I'm really not trying to hate on Rick Porcello, or but um, yeah, that's all right. You know that that was when you look at like the list of Cy Young winners, that one's kind of like eh. And I know Justin Verlander was not happy about not winning that, and I'm not even saying that he should. He, like, uh, but that was a year where it was just like the American League didn't really have an amazing right. pitcher. Um. And, you know, I mean, you still, if you're the best among all your peers, that's kind of the whole point of the award. So that's where I don't want to take it away from Porcello. But, you know, it, 
it's not like any of these top three guys in the National League would have won a Cy Young um, under those circumstances. Right. You know, they they were all deserving, but by the time this all wrapped up, it wasn't even close. I mean, the last couple of starts have just been the icing on the cake. What more did you want them to do? Right. You know? And there are still those old-timers who don't think he has enough wins. And I will never understand them. I just don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was nice. And, and, you know, for somebody who doesn't normally talk about wins, um, you know, it was nice that he finished with a 10-9 and nine record. Yes. It just gives people who like to complain about certain things one lesson to complain about. Right. And I understand that it's not DeGrom's fault that his entire baseball playing career from childhood till now has all been wrapped up in the idea of wins. Like that's, you know, it's very different for us guys on the outside to say that wins don't matter. But if your whole life has been trying to achieve wins... I understand why that would be a hard reality to accept uh, just sort of, you know, without reservation. So, yeah. Um, and, you know, I know you and Allison and you guys did a great job. Spent a, a whole bunch of last time's episode talking about Wright. But, you know, we're just a couple days away, Chris, from uh, from David Wright's last game as a Met. The uh, contractually obligated to not call it retirement party. Is, uh, <laughs> is happening in like 48 hours from now and uh yeah you know i don't i doubt either of our opinions have changed since the last episode was recorded but as we're just a couple days away now how are you feeling about all of this is this uh is this going to be as emotional and exciting and happy and sad as we all think it's going to be. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, there, there's some, uh, so I don't want I'm not trying to rain on the parade at all. There's, it, it's just, it's weird, right? Like it's in, in the moment on Saturday, it's going to be, this is all about David, Wright. The place is going to be packed. It's going to go nuts. Like it's gonna be cathartic, I think, and and you know we we all have our answer on, you know what, what David Wright's career is, and being there, I'm sure is gonna be awesome. So like that experience, to me, is is something that people should absolutely look forward to, um, but being the Mets. There's some weirdness, you know, they activate him a few days before and then they're like, well, he's not going to play. Um, you know, the Braves are playing for home field. Like what, <laughs> what, what was that? It just, if it was really only going to be this, just activate him on Friday or, or on Saturday right, itself, right. you know? Um, and, and how would it, yeah, I mean, obviously tonight's game would have been different if Mesoraco did not enter the game and hit his home run. But but really, in the scheme of the Mets season, how different would it have been if Wright was the pinch hitter instead of Mesoraco tonight? 
Right. You know, it's yeah, it's still the Mets. Yeah. But yeah, um, you know, I, I've always been a, uh, a a full supporter of David Wright. <laughs> and, you know, in that sense, like I was saying, the event itself should be incredible and a mix of, you know, super loud ovations and then also just sort of, you know, the, the, the sadness of, of the situation. Um, but yeah, I guess I, so my overall point, I guess, is don't let the Mets weirdness about all of it take away from, <laughs> from the event, but it's just, it's odd though. It, I guess would it would we really have it any other way, you know? Um, uh, has there been any real clarity about the difference between Wright's situation and officially calling it retirement in terms of his payment? Would he still get paid the same no matter what? Yeah, I haven't really read like nitty gritty details on exactly what the scenario is moving forward. Uh, I mean, obviously, we all assume uh, reasonably that doing it the way they're doing it will ensure that insurance is paying yes, some of the money. I know that is the case. But I'm wondering if, for rights, from Wright's perspective, if he makes any less if he says it's a retirement. Right. Yeah. Uh, like maybe. I'm, I'm thinking back to when... Michael Kadaya retired and I want to say they had to buy him out of something yeah right Isn't there, there was the, uh, yes it does it wasn't even that no, long ago. Feels like a lifetime <laughs> ago yeah it, 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 that October man we between all the times that we had Amazing Avenue meetups at, at the bar in Midtown, um, you know, and then going to so many games and, you know, spectating the marathon, which is not running the marathon, but still, like, uh, spectating the marathon and going to a World Series game in the same night. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, that was the end of the World Series. But... Uh, that was sort of a, a crazy span of like four and a half weeks. And I did get a nasty cold after, you know, <laughs> like once, once it came down from all that, it was like, Oh yeah. Uh, your body's like, that wasn't, that wasn't okay. It's time for you to pay for this. Um, but yeah, I missed that feeling. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's nice that you can get into October and be like, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, make plans and do all that kind of thing. Uh, but I do miss, you know, the potential world series champion version of the Mets. Yes. Agreed. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I, my overriding hope for Saturday is, well, it's two things. It's that Wright gets no balls hit to him so that there's not even a chance of him embarrassing himself in the field. Because I just think for, for all of our collective pride and all of our collective love of David Wright, to see him not make a play he used to make with ease would be tough to see. 
So that's that's my yeah. first hope. My second hope is that whoever's pitching for the Marlins grooves him a curveball and lets him just <laughs> take a home run deep. Because the Marlins have nothing to play for either. Do the right thing here. Let the guy just just drill a home run and then pull him out of the game. Yeah. Yeah. You know that that uh that would work. I was there and it's funny when you hear uh, not to well I am completely switching sports, but it's a New York sports thing that's relatable. Uh to different circumstances, he still had a lot of good years left. But when Strahan was on the verge of the sack record and that final sack, Brett Favre it, it, you know, Strahan got there and Favre just was kind of like, All right, this is happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. And Strahan's got a little bit of a sore spot about it that, you know, that people made it so much about that. And he's like, I had you know, 21 and a half before that, yeah, you know? yeah. like I, I kicked ass all season and, and, you know, so, so what, like that was just the last one, but the other ones were all still part of it. So in that same spirit uh, of Michael Strahan, who I think is, you know, one of the easiest guys to, to have rooted for as a New York sports fan. Uh, and you know, so is David Wright. So I have no problem with exactly that happening. And, you know what? Who cares? You know, if if the Marlins could be that, and you would think, I don't know, they're supposed to be like the uh, the classy Marlins now with the you know the Jeter Mattingly era. Um, so uh, I'm cool with it. I mean, if they want to throw like a nasty pitch and then Wright just turns it around for a home run, then hey, oh, I'll. <laughs> Like if that happens first, okay, that's even better. What I but if, back to is you know I, I was at Piazza's last game as a Met, and the next season he came back as a Padre, and Pedro grooved him a curveball, gave him a home run on his, his first at bat home, and Pedro's basically yeah. admitted that now, right? That's what he did, and right. And I was I was at that game. Oh, were too. you? I, I was not. I was not at that one. Um, uh-huh. But you know that was a. Uh, that's an instance of, you know, the Mets were competitive that year. And it was, yes, it was early in the season. It wasn't a big deal. But that that home run potentially could have meant way more to Pedro than it could mean to any Marlin for this season. Yeah. So do the right thing, Marlins. Let Wright just hit a dinger off you. And, uh, you know, let him have his emotional end to his career. And everybody will be happy in the long run. It's it's going to be weird. It's weird because so you know you and I are about the same age, and so David Wright and Jose Reyes were the first players that I felt were my like you know I'm I am literally like six months older than David Wright, so you know. They were my peers, and you just you appreciate those type of players differently than you when you're a kid, and you're looking up to somebody who is a a larger than life figure who seems like you know they couldn't like they they don't operate on the same plane of existence that you operate on. But I know lots yeah. of guys in my day to day life who are, I mean, not as good as as baseball as David Wright is, but are just like David Wright. Are those types of people? I recognize in him traits in people that I know. I know, you know, he's just, he was, 
he was kind of one of us. And I think that's I think right. that's a, just a very different thing for me. Seeing that guy retire is is hard. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, you know, you, being a sports fan, you, you, when you start to go like, oh, hmm, that guy's younger than me. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I don't know if there's uh, so, yeah. a single Met older than me at this point. No? I'm 36. Vargas? How old is Vargas? Uh, the time on our tradition of typing into baseball reference. Uh, Vargas, no, Vargas is 35. He'll be 36 in, in, uh, yeah, in February. Is there, is there anybody okay. older than Vargas? Um, I don't think Mesoraco is. No, he's not. Bruce isn't. Um, uh, right is a little bit older than Vargas, but I'm older than right. Yeah. I think I'm the old man. There you go. Until until they bring back Bartolo. Yeah, of course. Or Ari Dickey or both. <laughs> Can we just a, a quick mention of uh the and yes, uh, I don't want to pass by Dickey. <laughs> I'd say both yeah. still. But <laughs> Bartolo's commercial that he did for charcoal, I think. <laughs> Did no, you see I it? I haven't seen it. Oh man! So it's it's one of his teammates who I just didn't recognize in like the little tiny thumbnail Twitter video that I saw it on. Um, but one of his teammates just being like, "Man, Bartolo, how do you do it? You know, you're so old." And Bartolo talks about there's no off season, and it shows him doing some training stuff, and then he shakes his belly, and then it cuts to him. Just picking up this like gigantic piece of meat. I guess technically it might be. I think it's a rib, <laughs> technically, because um, I right. It, just this ridiculous thing, and takes a huge bite out of it, and then it's like buy charcoal, you know. <laughs> um, but that, yeah. If you have not seen it, just I think it, it Kingsford. Um, I think was the brand. So. I'm sure if you just Google Bartolo charcoal, you'll you'll find the video. But if you've not seen it yet, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Uh, But yeah, I uh, I really truly truly hope the Mets don't fuck this up on Saturday. Yeah, well, and and um, I don't think this will happen. I think right is probably doing everything he can this week to make sure that Saturday is, you know, perfect. Um, And I'm sure that no matter how much he, how good or bad he feels on Saturday, he's still going to go out and, you know, play this game. Um, So I don't think there's any risk of that, but I'm sure somewhere in his mind, he's like, man, what if I wake up on Saturday and I'm just, you know, I, I I can't go. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sure that's there. Um, Nine quarters of knowing shots. him. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, like I oh, just let's just do one, and you know, pretty much every part of my spine. Um, but yeah, it, it's I I will uh, you know this being his final game. Uh, and the fact that they haven't used him at all, he's not, I doubt he's going to play at all on Sunday no. either. Um, but I've, I've never lacked faith 
and David Wright. So, you know, uh, nobody's ever had to say that I find your lack of faith in David Wright disturbing. Uh, (laughs) So I have faith that he will do it one more time and he'll do something you know, whether it's a, a, a grouped pitch or, or not, he'll do something that everybody goes, man, that's that's the guy we remember. And he can go out on a high note, you know. And, uh, yeah. So, so here's a question I asked my brother last week, and I think you're going to have the same answer he had. If this were any other franchise, literally any other franchise, would they retire his number before the game on Saturday? Um, (sighs) Hmm. I'm trying to think. I I would say no, only because they all like to like milk it for another sellout, or at least announce announce it. Like you know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I I, know. No. And David, after tonight, no player will ever wear number five again. Like just say right. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't expect the Mets no, to do that. I, I think. <laughs> I think a team, a hypothetical major league team, could do it. I, I think um, any other franchise other than the Mets would do it. Yeah. Didn't they pretty much you, do that you, for Jeter when he retired. Uh, I forget, but that, like, I forget we specifically, but that. There. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, but yeah, if the Wilpons were looking for a good PR move, they would go down on the field and take the heat for being themselves and, you know, just kind of either keep go poker faced or smile and sort of just let it, let it, let people get their venting out at you. And say, David, congratulations on a great career. We know you've always been a Met, and you're always going to be a Met. Uh, you know, this this is you. You are family to this organization, and you know, we we want to let you and our fans and the rest of baseball know tonight that you know we're going to retire number five. I'm not saying people would love them; they'd still hate them. You know, as soon as the next day. But like for once, they could just do something that people would they would speak and people would go nuts cheering. Like what else could they say that would make forty five thousand people happy? We're selling the team. (laughs) We're selling the team or we signed Machado and Harper and like a whole bullpen. Right. Yeah. 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 Like that's that's pretty much it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So. Again, I was out with my brother a week ago, and and he he's a Mets fan in in exile out in Arizona, so he doesn't get to watch as many games. We were talking about it, and he said, like, who do you think are the Mets? They're going to come back for this game. Like, who are the who are the people who who are Wright's teammates who are going to show up that you feel like this game couldn't happen without those guys there? And so I, I have a list of three or four, but I'm interested to hear if you have anybody other than who I have. So I'll, I'll give you a couple to, to give you time to warm up here. I okay. think Cliff Floyd has to be there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, they, they had, you know, sort of a tight relationship. Yeah. And, and he, he sort of represents like when 
when Wright, you know, was emerging, he was he was right there. Um, I don't think Beltran has to be there. As much as I would love him to be there, I don't think, even though they played together a long time, I don't think of him in the same. I don't think of he and Wright as being particularly close. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe I'm wrong about that. It didn't seem they were particularly yeah. tight. Um, some other players I thought about, uh, Ty Wigginton, perhaps. A, okay. You know, who played third base before Wright and sort of shepherded Wright into that, uh, into that position when, when he came up. Um, I think, uh, Michael Kadire, his buddy, two Kadire mentions in one podcast, by the way, this is a record since, uh, <laughs> since that happened, since his retirement happened. Since, since I was a Kadire fan with the jersey yep. and all that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you, you never got the fedora, did you? No, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't that, Not that much of a Kadire fan. Got it. Yeah. Um, and then I think I think Piazza and Seaver, just because he now joins them as the Mount Rushmore of the Mets, and I hope yeah. that those guys yeah, so come out like as as representatives of what this means. Yeah, am I forgetting anybody for you? Yeah, no, no. I mean, so I. I... My my mind went to the you know those the pillars of Mets player history, um, and the, those are the two guys. You know, um, it might be cool to have like the managers there. Yeah, yeah you, you know, I mean, Jerry it, Manuel, it, maybe. Yes, <laughs> but you know, it's it's a kind of thing Did where he was. Uh, he yeah, he did, right? He did, yeah. Yeah, so Art Howe, Willie Randolph, Jerry Manuel, Terry Collins. Yeah. And then yeah. Callaway yeah. being there already. But yeah, no, it just, uh, not, not that you're trying to necessarily overdo it, but if uh, it's rare for a baseball player to be named captain of a team. Um, you know, so Franco probably has to be there. Yeah. We, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Uh, but, you yeah, know, just sort of being in that position that's unique and not that he had that title for his entire career. But, you know, this is somebody who obviously was always sort of seen as a leader on the team, which is why he got that title. Um, so I'm sure the managers are all, you know, uh uh, fairly close with them. I wonder if like Steve Phillips who drafted him will be there. Yeah, that that could make sense. Um, I don't know how much of a pregame ceremony there's going to be. Right. Um, but I really hope that the Mets really roll out the red carpet for him. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I would think um, – Obviously, you could extend it to the Mets, uh, that Mets family concept, you know. So, uh, I mean, Horowitz is still there doing what he's doing. Uh, I would, I would assume like Shannon Ford's family will probably be involved in some way because they were so close, you know. And and you know, Shannon was the best, and uh, 
like that'll just add a, a, another layer of emotion to everything. But I know that Wright had a really close relationship with her family. So, you know, it's, it, you start thinking about all this stuff and, and it's, you know, quite, quite a large group of people who, who can make sense, uh, to be important parts of all of this for him. Yeah. Uh, did you see him mention that he would like to be a part of the Mets front office next year? Yes. Make it happen, Mets. Yeah. I don't know what's wrong with him, but <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love him for it. Like, <laughs> Look, he's going to be collecting $20 million from them. He might as well do something. I would love to see him go into broadcasting with A-Rod. <laughs> yeah. You know, like uh, the, the, the two New York third baseman yeah i uh i feel like he's too nice to go into broadcasting he, he yeah no i critique he, he has enough. right oh man he's trying hard you know <laughs> that kind of stuff. yeah i do want to hear him in the booth oh yeah, though. yeah. like as, a, as an occasional drop-in kind of thing you know it, it's and at times you know you just wonder you know, what's the real, I think we get the real David Wright on, on a certain level, but I don't know. I just want to hear him be like, not necessarily get himself into trouble with his words like Keith sometimes does, <laughs> that, that not that point, but you know, just, I don't know, tell me a story about like why you hope this game ends so you can go home and like make sure you get to your favorite restaurant for steak, yeah. you know, before you, before you get home. It's something along those lines are just you know, not your standard fair um, right club. You know, right is of that generation that has been media trained within an inch of their lives. So I don't know what it's going to take for him to like loosen up enough to be a good guest in the booth. Cause yeah. And this is no offense to the guy. He's not the most interesting interview out there. Right. You know, because he is just every answer seems so perfectly trained. So. We gotta, we gotta let him. We have to let him like have a spring training under Keith's direction. Oh boy! <laughs> you know, and then hopefully he forgets half what Keith taught him and half of his media training, and comes together into something really enjoyable. Yeah, I'd love to. Like, I'm picturing it sort of as, and I know Kiner had a long broadcasting career of his own before he sort of tapered it off. Um, you know later in his career in his life. Uh, but when he would drop in, there was a point when he would drop in maybe half a dozen times per season and be in the, in the booth and just, uh, you'd hear just stories and a perspective on the game and this warmth, you know, that that's on my wish list of uh, things David Wright could do that would, you know, he, he doesn't have to do a damn thing after Saturday. He could say, you know what? I don't really want to work in the front office. I'm just going to spend time being a family man. I'm going to be a Mets fan just like the rest of you. And he would be a legend for the franchise forever, you know, without doing anything else. Um, but, uh, you know, I like the concept of a guy who's like Kiner, you know, who... Uh, I mean, in his case, didn't even play for the team, right, but yeah. you know, 
was just part of the the fabric of the Mets because he 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 was really good at what he did, uh, and he was around for so long. So you know, I guess that's my selfish wish. So we need like rights corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's hard to do real alliteration, so just take the corner. <laughs> rights. Uh... Or you can call it the hot corner. There we go. That's a way to honor Ralph Kiner and to give it yes. to right. Call it the hot corner. Yeah. Mets, hire Chris and I to take care of this stuff. <laughs> we'll produce the hot corner for you. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I, I, could, I could hang out with yeah. David Wright. That would be fine. Throw us some season tickets. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, that was good. Yeah. Nice chunk of time out of that. Um, yeah, for sure. So, yeah, uh, I will, it's actually uh, Saturday is mine and Aaron's wedding anniversary. So oh, yeah, that's right. At the game. Uh, but we'll nice. Be there. So if you're going to be there, like shoot me a text or something. We'll meet up for a drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, there's sort of this day-to-dayness of yeah. everything, but... Given the updates today, if I want to go, I could probably pull it off. You know, like, and, and we've been, Diana and I have been pretty good. Hey everybody, this is Steve Seiper, and this week I'm going to go over how the 2018 season went for the Binghamton Roman Ponies. The team went 64-72, and 72, which was a pretty big drop as compared to the 2017 season where they went 85-55. Uh, and 55. But let's be honest, it wasn't a very good team that they were fielding. That didn't stop eyes from being glued to the Binghamton team, though, when the year started. Uh, last year, people were interested because of the name change, the new logo, and rebranding, and all that stuff. And this year, people were interested not because of Peter Alonso, not because of Jeff McNeil, but... Tim Tebow. Those two other guys obviously would become the main stories of the 2018 Rumble Ponies, but first, everyone was fixated on Tebow. He didn't deserve to be in double A. How would he do in double A? He sucks. You suck. The Mets suck. Blah, blah, blah. So, almost 5,240 people braved that 35 degree weather on opening day, which is an increase from 4,680, so that's a pretty big increase as compared to 2017. And in that game, Peter Alonso homered in the bottom of the first. Tim Tebow homered in a few batters later. And then in the next inning, Jeff McNeil homered. And to Tebow's credit, he didn't embarrass himself as the season progressed and those early weeks became, you know, months. Uh, his season ended prematurely on July 19th after he broke his right hamate bone. But he got into 84 games and he hit 273, 336, 399. And that's not bad. To put that in context, that's a better hit batting line that Patrick Mazeka put up in a similar amount of games. It's a better batting line than Matt Oberste put up. It's a better batting line than John Mora put up. That's a better batting line than Andrew Eli put up. Obviously, none of those guys are like actual prospects. Um, Oberste got released. Eli was a waiver claim that basically is just organizational depth. And Mazeka and Mora are just kind of depth guys. But nobody questions their baseball credentials. And... Tebow out hit quote unquote actual ball players. 
I was just as doubtful about the whole Tebow thing when he signed. You know, I thought the signing was hilarious because of how bent out of shape people are getting about it and the whole media circus that it was creating. But at this point, Tebow is, I don't know. I mean, he's not a prospect. He isn't a quad A depth guy. Maybe he is. But I guess he's like a kind of secondary role player, um, minor league guy that people are cognizant of. You know, Champ Stewart's, the Johan Urania's, Mickey Janice's, guys that most people that have some awareness of the minors, they don't give you blank looks at when you bring up their names. Tebow is one of those guys, except more like Christian-y. But Tebow aside, the real storyline of the 2018 Binghamton Rumble Pony season was Peter Alonso and Jeff McNeil. Alonso, ever since he made some changes to his swing and his approach last June, he's been on fire. So it's easy to predict that he'd have some success. But McNeil kind of came out of nowhere. The signs were there, if you know where to look. And it's not like nobody could have predicted that he'd had he'd have success, though maybe not as much success as he had. But he bulked up a few seasons ago. He adjusted his swing to, you know, include more loft and have a greater launch angle. And, you know, it was just his health that was keeping him down. We ranked him here, uh, the Mets' 21st top prospect. And we were the Amazing Avenue was the only Mets-centric list to include McNeil. And I got to say, that was all Greg and Lucas. I jumped off the McNeil train last year, and literally that was the worst time to jump off it. That'd be like selling my stock right before the company took off. Um, Jeff and Jared at, at BP, they're also in on McNeil for a while before his breakout went from you know small sample to a considerable chunk of the season. And Jeff was really one of the first people to report on McNeil's muscle gains a few years ago and conclude that it was legit. But... McNeil turning to a legit player, it's a pretty huge boon for the Mets. Um, they have a pretty long history of trading away middle infielders right before they blossom and missing out on the gains. Jeff Kepinger, Justin Turner, Daniel Murphy. So it's nice that the team might actually for once get to taste the fruit of that. But outside of Alonzo and McNeil, and then to a lesser degree, credit where credit's due, Tebow, there's a lot of schlock getting on uh, the field Two guys, Nick Sergakis and Matt Oberstey, they were given their releases during the season. Tyler Moore was sent backing after the season ended. And things weren't that much better on the pitching side either. Uh, Mickey Janis and Neville Chrismat, they anchored the rotation. And regardless of their actual upsides, they're guys that could handle double-A pitching. But after them, it got hairy. Uh, Justin Dunn, he was promoted to Binghamton in June, and he was very hit or miss. Marcus Molina was just terrible, and he got released midseason. Andrew Church, also terrible, and he retired midseason. Harold Gonzalez, he got promoted mid-year, and he didn't have a very good showing for himself. Though, I do think that he gets the hang of double-A and is a better player next year. Franklin Killame, he was acquired midseason. That was an amazing acquisition, a great trade. But, and hopefully he blossoms next year. But he was kind of eh in his seventh start. And that basically was the rotation. The bullpen the bullpen was decent. It actually looked like a strength at times. Uh, Daniel Zamora and Ty Bachelor, they made their major league debuts, and that's great. And Ryder Ryan and Stephen Villines probably will next year, or maybe the year after, but sometime in the near future. And then there's a big group of toss-up guys, Eric Hanhold, Steve Nogasek, David Roseboom, Joshua Torres, Corey Taylor, 
Matt Blackham, Austin McGeorge, Adonis Uceta. They could all possibly get MLB innings. But uh, those 2018 Rumble Ponies will be the first class of Syracuse Mets next year. So things might be a little iffy in Syracuse next year. And the 2018 St. Lucie Mets, they're going to be the 2019 Binghamton Rumble Ponies. And that means that things might be a little down in Binghamton again next year. Um, I'll go over who those St. Lucie Mets are and why things aren't looking good for Binghamton next year, next week. Mason Avenue podcast listeners, Allison McCaig here with another installment of the Degrometer and the Nemometer, um, where we I give you updates on the stellar seasons of two of our favorite Mets, Jacob Degrom and Brandon Nimmo. Um, it's quite a happy um, Degrometer and Nemometer this week. Um, I have a little bit um, more stats to give you this week than usual because it's been about ten days since I last recorded this segment. So we have two Degrom starts to go over. Um, so he started. Um, on Sunday, September 16th, against the Red Sox, um, he gave he gave up three runs over sent seven innings of work um, on five hits with one walk and a dozen strikeouts. Um, he looked absolutely lethal early in this start, um, and he was mowing down the Sox in the first couple of innings. He struck out six of the first seven batters he faced, um, and that was going toe-to-toe with Chris Sale as well, which is saying something. Uh, but with one out in the third, um, the powerful Red Sox offense struck. Uh, he gave up two singles and then a long sack fly to Mookie Betts that was hit to the absolutely deepest part of Fenway Park. And honestly, it would have been a home run many, many places. Um, but then Brock Holt immediately gave one a ride after that. Um, and this time the ball went out. Um, so DeGrom was tagged for three runs in that frame. Um, but as always, DeGrom was completely unflappable. Um, and he held the Red Sox there. He gave up just two hits the whole rest of the way to get through seven innings. Um, and his dozen strikeouts were the most any pitcher has managed against the Red Sox lineup this year. So that's saying something too. Um, the Mets were actually able to tie it up in the top of the seventh to get DeGrom off the hook for the loss before Seth Lugo gave up the game winning run. Um, so the Mets lost the game, but DeGrom didn't get the loss. Um, DeGrom's ERA rose ever so slightly um, by .07 points to put him at 1.78 for the year at that point. Um, and then he remained 8-9 and nine, uh, on the season at that point. It may have been a quote-unquote bad start by DeGrom's standards, and he said as much after the game that he wasn't happy with his effort. But against the best team in baseball, uh, keeping his quality start streak alive, especially bouncing back from a rough inning like he had, was still really incredible and seriously impressive. Nonetheless, Um, his most recent start was on Friday night against the Nationals. Um, Again, he went seven innings. This time he only gave up one run on three hits. Um, He walked one batter and struck out eight batters. Um, For once, DeGrom was actually handed a lead before he even took the mound um, as the Mets scored a run in the first inning. Uh, But after a quick and easy first inning, DeGrom lost his command a little bit in the second. um, He issued a leadoff walk to Anthony Rendon, and then he got 3-0 on um, Juan Soto. He worked the count back full to Soto. Devin Mezzarocco actually went out to the mound to talk to him, and then he buckled down and went 3-2 on Soto, worked the count back full, but then Soto singled, and Ryan Zimmerman hit a sacrifice fly to tie the game. Um, But after the 
second inning ended with DeGrom picking off uh, Wilmer Defoe off first base. Um, he went into complete cruise control and was unhittable virtually after that. He only allowed two base runners for the whole rest of the outing, and the Mets scored three runs in the top of the third to give him a 4-1 to lead to work with, and that turned out to be plenty for him. Um, the Mets bullpen bent, but it did not break this time, and the Mets won 4-2 to to get DeGrom back to 500 on the season at 9-9, nine and nine, and it was also his 23rd quality start, which is the most uh, in a row that any pitcher has ever recorded in the history of baseball in one season. So uh, breaking records left and right every time he takes the mound. Um, you know, this is likely his penultimate start of the season. He likely gets just one more. In order for him to get multiple starts, he would have to pitch on short rest. Um, and I, I think that's unlikely, and I don't really see a reason for him to do that at this point. If people are going to, people are either going to take wins into account or they're not. I don't think an extra start is really going to do DeGrom, make any difference for DeGrom one way or the other in the Cy Young race. Um, but, so it's likely his penultimate start, so no matter what happens against the Braves this week, um, DeGrom will have had a fantastic season and one to remember. Um, so let's go over the season stats. Um, he's thrown 209 innings now, and he has a 1.77 ERA for the whole season, um, a 0.94 whip, a 2.03 FIP, 11.15 um, strikeouts per nine innings, uh, 1.98 walks per nine innings, uh, 0.43 home runs per nine innings, and a 211 ERA+. plus. So that is something historic. That's something that the Mets have not seen since the likes of Doc Gooden and Tom Seaver. This is a season that we're going to remember for a really long time, even if there wasn't a, a lot of uh, things to remember about 2018. This was one of them. Um, so his 8.3 fan graphs war on the season is first uh, among pitchers in the National League by far. Um, Scherzer, Max Scherzer, has a 6.8, and Aaron Nola has a 5.5. Um Baseball reference war, again, uh, Nola has the lead there, like he has done all year, um, with a 9.8 uh, B war for pitchers. Um, but DeGrom has been inching ever closer um, because Nola and Scherzer have both struggled in their recent starts, whereas DeGrom has stayed um, pretty good. So uh, DeGrom's inching ever closer. It used to be that Nola had like a whole win lead on DeGrom and B-War, but DeGrom's up to a 9.2 now uh, compared to Nola's 9.8, and Scherzer is at 8.3. Um, but if you look at baseball reference, um, all to get baseball reference war altogether, and not just for pitchers, that takes hitting into account and things like that. Um, Degrom actually leads now, so he has a nine point seven war, um, and Nola has nine point three, and Scherzer has nine point two. Um, so the other thing that I think is worth pointing out um, is that the position player with the highest Fangraphs war in the National League is currently Christian Yelich at a six point six. And remember, DeGrom's at an 8.3. So DeGrom's almost two wins ahead of the nearest position player atop the NL in war. So DeGrom is not only getting Cy Young buzz at this point, but he's getting MVP buzz as well. Um, a few of us in Mets world and Amazing Avenue world have been talking about DeGrom for MVP for a little while now, but it's entering the national conversation a little bit. Um, it's worth noting that in 2014, Clayton Kershaw won the MVP, which is probably the best comp we can come up with in recent history for as far as starting pitchers winning the MVP. Um, and other than wins, Kershaw did not have better numbers than DeGrom has now, and he was only 0.2 
Fangraphs were ahead of the nearest position player that year, Andrew McCutcheon, who had a fantastic season that season. Um, although DeGrom is ahead in all the polls for the Cy Young, I would be shocked at this point if he won the MVP, um, just because of the team's losing record and his own unlucky 500 record. Um, it probably has more pull there in the MVP conversation than it does in the Cy Young conversation at this point. His lack of wins, the team's not being in contention. Um, Still, in a year with no obvious MVP in the National League, he has a case, and I think it's a pretty strong one. And in fact, Fangraphs just wrote, wrote an article recently arguing that DeGrom should win the NL MVP, saying that in part, despite the fact that DeGrom is pitching for a non-contending team, like I said, he does lead the league in win probability added, um, which says something about the leverage of the situations he's pitching in. And we've been over and over the fact that DeGrom, by far has pitched the most innings of anyone with a one-run margin of error, as in he's either leading by one run, down by one run, or the game is tied. He leads the league by far in innings pitched in that scenario. So yeah, maybe the team isn't in contention, maybe the games aren't important, but he's still pitching in very high-leverage situations almost all the time. Almost every inning he pitches is a high-leverage inning. So that says something. Um... You know, I, I recommend looking at that article, the one that Fangraphs wrote, if you uh, have a chance to. Um, it, it also takes a look at pitchers winning the MVP historically and how far they've been ahead of the nearest position player in war, et cetera, et cetera. It looks at Bob Gibson and others. So you should go check that out. Um, but meanwhile, DeGrom for MVP, Fangraphs, one of us, one of us. So definitely ch- ban- uh, beating that MVP drum now. I'm getting greedy. I don't just want the Cy Young. I want the MVP. It's not happening, but I want it. <laughs> So we talked, okay, so we talked a lot about DeGrom. Let's talk about Brandon Nimmo. Um, since September 13th, when I last recorded one of these segments, um, Nimmo has had 53 plate appearances, and he's put up rather interesting numbers, so we're going to talk about them. He isn't getting a lot of hits, but as per usual, he's drawing a ton of walks. So his slash line's a little weird. He's slashing 167, 434, 333, um, which is good for a 131 WRC+. So he has just six hits in that span in 53 plate appearances, hence the 167 batting average. Uh, two singles, three doubles, and a home run. Uh, that home run came on the Saturday game at Fenway that put the Mets ahead 3-1 to at the time. Um, but he still walked a whopping 13 times in that span in 53 plate appearances and struck out just eight times. Um, and he was also hit by four pitches. So he's not ro- rocking a very high batting average, but he's still getting on base in an extremely high clip. Um, so his on-base ability has been elite this season, um, and that's continuing to show even when he doesn't get his base hits. Um, so on the season so far, um, as it's coming to close to a close, um, he has 517 plate appearances, and he's slashing 261, 397, 483 overall, with 110 hits, 17 home runs, 47 RBIs, 76 runs scored, and 9 stolen bases. His 146 WRC Plus is second in the National League to Christian Yelich, and his 147 OPS plus is second in the National League to Christian Yelich on the season. Um, he has accrued a 4.4 Fangraphs war, which is actually 13th in the NL, so getting pretty close to cracking the top 10 in the National League overall, um, which is incredible. Um, and he, he has four baseball reference war, and he's actually he actually has cracked the top the top 10. Uh, when it comes to baseball reference in offensive war at 4.7, he's ninth there. 
um, in the National League. So um, let's compare, let's take a minute to compare Brandon Nimmo's first half with his second half, because I think it's interesting. Both of them have been great, um, but the numbers are pretty revealing, I think. So in the first half, Brandon Nimmo slashed 253, 373, 490 with an 863 OPS, um, a 140 WRC plus, and he walked 11.9% of the time and struck out 28.9% of the time. Okay, internalize that. <laughs> Second half numbers. Um, he's slashing 273, 432, 472 with a 904 OPS, a 156 WRC plus, and he has a 17.5 walk percentage and a 22.3 strikeout percentage. So overall, he's shown a little less power in the second half, but he's actually increased his average and on-base percentage and shown consistent elite on-base ability the whole season. He's also striking out even less and walking even more in the second half, um, which is saying something. I, I think it's it's shown that he's even developed as a player, even though he started out with such a stellar first half, he's even developed in the second half, despite um, a couple of hit-by-pitches punctuating this and leaving him sidelined for a couple weeks at a time. Um, so I think that says something about the player that he's becoming. And if that doesn't excite you, combined with Michael Conforto's second half and with Je- Jeff McNeil is doing at the plate, if that all isn't something to be excited about, man, I don't know what it is. Um, that's pretty great. <laughs> um, so if Brandon and Michael Conforto and Jeff McNeil can be the players that we've seen them be in the second half this year and throw in Ahmed Rosario into that pot as well, we've got something here. Um, I just saw, I know this isn't the McNeil-o-meter or the Conforto-meter, but I just saw a stat today that Jeff McNeil put up the same amount of FWAR in his 57 games as Ioannis Cespedes did in his 2015 um, post-trade to the Mets um, during that summer and fall when they were making the stretch run in those 57 games. That is seriously impressive. Now, that is with the huge caveat that at the time Ioannis Cespedes was playing center field, that significantly probably dampened his war numbers because his defensive um, numbers probably took a big hit for that because he's not really a center fielder. He's a corner outfielder. Um but that said, putting up that amount of war in such a short period of time is seriously something else. Um, so Brandon Nimmo, um, even evolving as a player, despite having an elite first half, having an elite second half with elite, you know, on base ability is something to be excited about for the future. And combine that with Conforto's second half, what McNeil is doing, what Rosario is doing. Um, we have a serious core to work with. So, you know, even if everything else sucks, we have those things. <laughs> so hopefully um, the next time I join you um, with one of these segments, um, DeGrom will have thrown his last start and it will have been awesome. And maybe I'll even get to tell you that he won the Cy Young. We'll see. Um, so, you know, things are looking up in the DeGrom in the numometer. Um, so I'll be joining you again soon with what will likely be the final um, degrometer and numometer for the season. It's been a pleasure. Um, so I hope you enjoyed this segment and um, I'll catch you I'll catch you in your feeds again soon. Well, folks, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. 
Thank you so much for listening. We truly, truly appreciate it. If you're going to be at the game on Saturday, please say hi. Um, I will be at the game with my wife. It is our 11th wedding anniversary. So uh, don't let that dissuade you, I guess. I'm already killing the romance by bringing her to David Wright's last game. But, you know, uh, we're going to be walking around by the Shade Bridge probably behind section, uh, I think it's 121 is our usual hangout spot. So we'll be there. Uh, A lot of Mason Avenue is coming out. So tweeted us. Uh, at Amazing Avenue, at Brian Needs a Nap, at Chris McShane, at Petite PhD, at Steve Saipa. Be lots and lots of us there. So tweet at us. We'll maybe get together and hang out and uh, share a drink or at least, you know, clink glasses as you walk by. So please reach out if you're going to be at the game on Saturday. Uh, I'm sorry we didn't do another uh, game meetup this year. It just didn't work out with the end of the season kind of spiraling into David Wright and Saturday. But, you know, we're going to do something really fun for episode 300 in a few weeks. So details forthcoming for that. And, uh, yeah, we're going to do a game next year for sure. So until then, though, please go to AmazingAvenue.com where you can read all your Mets news and analysis that you could ever possibly want. We're going to be having a GM hunt soon. We're hopefully going to be signing Manny Machado soon. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. Um, so lots to cover in the off season. So check that out. You can also find Amazing Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. You can get this show from blogtalkradio.com, from Stitcher, or from Apple Podcasts, or really from wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That helps us quite a bit. And uh, yeah, I went through the Twitter handles before. So follow us, tweet at us on Saturday, and Saturday and beyond. Let's go Mets. Thank you, David Wright.